A reading from the Gospel of St. Luke in the 20th chapter. There came to him some Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our strength and you are our redeemer. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. I invite you to be seated. I mentioned last week that we are fast approaching the beginning of Advent season. The Christian year, the church's calendar is wrapping up in the next couple of weeks and we'll begin a new cycle of of calendar, a new cycle of feasting and fasting and rejoicing as we live together in the story of Christ and in the story of Christ's church. For many of us who grew up celebrating Advent or observing Advent, we're familiar with the, we call them the themes of Advent. Typically for us, the themes of Advent are something like hope, peace, love, and joy. Each week during Advent, we celebrate one of those, one of those particular things. But it, it might catch you off guard to learn that those were not traditionally the themes that were observed during the celebration of Advent. In fact, historically, when the church celebrated Advent, the themes that we focused on in our liturgy and the themes that we focused on in prayer and in worship are something we call the four last things. The four last things are death, judgment, hell, and heaven. Now that sounds a little bit strange to us at first when we think about hell and death and judgment and heaven and thinking, yes, that sounds just like getting ready for Christmas, doesn't it? But of course, if we, if we pause for a minute, we, we realize that, that the four last things are not opposed to the themes that we normally celebrate during Advent. If we understand them properly, the two, of the, the two sets of things are not at all opposed. We say that Christ is king, 
And that when the king returns, the second advent, the, the focus of our advent, that he's going to return and bring healing, that he's going to bring justice. C.S. Lewis says that when he shakes his mane, spring will come again. But hope and joy and peace and love are wonderful things when we expect our king is returning to us. But if our entire life is shaped by rejecting hope and joy and peace and love, then the advent of the king is not a hopeful thing at all, but in fact is a terrifying thing. So it's important for us to pause and think about those last things. We hear a lot about those last things, especially in, in our culture. The ultimate question that we have in front of us is a question of trust. Where does our trust lie? Where does our hope rest? What do we rest our hope on? Now, the gospel lesson that we read today seems a little bit out of place. It's a very strange sort of a gospel lesson. Part of the reason that it seems strange is that it's way out of context. Okay, so to understand what is happening in this story, we need to go back and try again. <laughs> let's, let's try again. So last week, we, we read the story about Jesus and his entry into Jericho. And he goes into Jericho, and he meets Zacchaeus, and he goes and he spends time with the chief tax collector. In Luke's gospel, the next thing that Jesus does is climb the hill to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, a crowd is there. They've heard that he's coming, and they welcome him the way that they would welcome a returning king or a prophet. This is the triumphal entry. This is the last few days that lead up to Christ's death and his resurrection. And so what does he do? He's received in triumph, and he immediately goes to what? The temple. He goes to the temple, and as soon as he walks into the temple, he sees commerce money changers, people selling animals, and he drives them out of the courts of the temple. Now, when he does this, it upsets the balance of literally everything in Jerusalem. The entire city, the, the entire center of the city is, is, is the work that happens in the temple. And Jesus just turns it over and drives everyone out. And so all of the leaders of, of the Jewish people in Jerusalem descend on Jesus. All right, the first ones that show up are, as we would expect, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees begin to challenge him. They, they, they want to know whose authority is it that he imagines that he holds? How, who, who is he to, to do the things that he's doing? Well, then he tells the story that we may be familiar with, the story of the wicked tenants. By whose authority do you do this? Once upon a time. This, this, this is how Jesus responds to them. He tells, he tells them stories. Well, he tells them this story about the wicked tenants, and they're, they're horrified and shocked and deeply offended, and so they stop talking. Well, then the Herodians show up. Now, the Pharisees are sort of like, uh, um, oh, I can't even think of how to describe them. They, they, their job is to sort of keep everything in line. They want everybody to be doing the things. Their, their job is to sort of policing the culture of, of the world around them. The Herodians are more like politicians, all right? They, they don't really care very much about religion and those kinds of things. What they're interested in is making sure that everybody survives Roman occupation. Uh, and so they're going to do whatever it takes to survive Roman occupation. <clears throat> 
So the Herodians come to him and they say, well, maybe you don't, you, you don't, you don't care about you know, the, the, the Pharisees and their leadership in our culture, but let's talk about how taxes work for a second. And they bring him a coin. And, and of course, the, the same thing happens. Well, then the next group that shows up are the Sadducees. And the Sadducees' job is to run the temple. Their job is to make sure that the temple works. So, so the people that are, the, are, are the, the influencers, the cultural influencers show up and Jesus shames them and they go away. And then the politicians show up and Jesus shames them and they go away. And now the people who run the temple, the religious people show up and they say, we're going to ask him a very important question. They say, pretend that there was this guy and he died. And so... He didn't have any kids, so his, you know, brother married, married his wife. That's, that, that's how the law works, uh, and, and they die, and so on, and so on, and so on. Seven of them die, all right? Now, you're a teacher. When this resurrection thing happens, because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, because it wasn't written in the first four books of the Old Testament, we called the Torah, uh, and they rejected the canonicity of anything that wasn't those first four books, what we would call Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. If it wasn't there, then they rejected it. They had nothing to do with those, with, with, with those books. And they said, well, there's not resurrection in those books, so we don't believe in it. So when this resurrection thing happens that you people are all into, whose wife is she going to be? And then the Lord did sigh heavily and roll his eyes at them all. <laughs> doesn't say that. It's implied. It's, it, it's implied in the text. No, he turns it back on them and he says, that, that's a ridiculous question. Why would you even ask that question? Obviously, you don't understand what we're talking about. When we talk about resurrection, when we talk about eternal life, you don't understand what it is that God is doing in his creation because God is alive and everyone who is in God is alive as well. It's a question of hope. Where does our hope rest? Some folks, this was true in Jesus' day, as, as true as it is now. Some folks believe that now and eternity are infinitely split. That whatever eternity is, is something that God experiences. And that we don't have any participation in that. So we don't need to worry about it. What we need to worry about is right now. Right here and right now. There's no connection between eternity and now. And because everything is all about now, and it's all about not saying that there's something ahead of us or something toward us, then the choices that we make are infinitely important. Because any kind of idea that there's going to be a, a reward or something like that, that's just a crutch. It's, a, it, it, it's an opiate that just helps us to get through uh, you know, our, our sort of day-to-day -day lives. They imagine that good deeds can only be good deeds if they are done in and of themselves, not if they're done for something, but only if they're done because we want them to be good. In our culture, we would refer to them as naturalists. In Jesus' day, these are the Sadducees. I like to think of them as autumn people. Now, I didn't come up with that word. Ray Bradbury came up with that phrase. If you haven't read Ray Bradbury's book, Something Wicked This Way Comes, or if you haven't read it since, you know, you were in middle school, you should pick up a copy of that and read that. You know, before we get into Thanksgiving and Christ the King, grab that book and read it. This is the perfect time of year for reading that book. But he describes the autumn people this way. He says, for some, autumn comes early. 
and stays late through life where October follows September and November touches October. But then instead of December and Christ's birth, there's no Bethlehem star, no rejoicing, but September comes again and old October and so on down through the years. No winter, no spring, no revivifying summer. For these beings, fall is the ever normal season, the only weather, and there is no choice beyond it. Beware the autumn people. For the autumn people, the Sadducees, the naturalists, hope is all about right here, right now. It's always only what's happening right here in front of me. There's a complete and total rejection of eternity and eternal things. Now that's one extreme, but you can go to the other extreme with this as well. There are some folks that, that, that still split eternity and now, but they believe that now doesn't matter and that eternity is the only thing that's important. The naturalist thinks that only now matters and other folks believe that only eternity matters. So instead of choosing happiness now, you have to choose happiness later. In fact, you only get to choose one or the other. If you want to be happy now, then you don't get to be happy later. If you want to be happy later, you have to be unhappy now. This is how they believe. We run into this all the time in our culture because this is sort of a fixation for people who are caught up in all of the end times discussion. Always looking for signs and portents that, that somebody is going to reveal the secret code that's going to show us who the bad guys really are. For them, life is sort of a test. Life, the things that we experience day in and day out, are just a journey through a veil of tears that passes away and doesn't matter anymore. We would think about them in, in our culture as being dualists. They believe in this division between the real world and, and the fake world. In Jesus' day, this is what the Pharisees held to. The Pharisees were dualists. I think it's useful to think of them in, in, in our terminology as winter people. People believe that what's happening right here and right now is, is all broken and sad, but eventually, someday, real things are going to happen. This stuff doesn't matter. It's what's coming down the way. People who always only live in the midst of February, and they never experience spring. Their life is only ever a hope in the next season. And so they reject any possibility of joy in the midst of our struggle right now. But what if the dualists and the naturalists are wrong? What if the Pharisees and the Sadducees missed out on it? What if we're not supposed to be either winter people or autumn people? One of my favorite preachers is a, is a Catholic priest named Father Kavanaugh, and he said it this way. He said, what if there's no discontinuity between this life and the afterlife? What if there's just life, some of it eternal and some of it temporal? If that's the case, then the way that we live now is the way we will always live. How we live is the promise of our destiny. That is exactly what Jesus is saying in our gospel lesson today. That in Christ, death is no longer an end. It's merely a change. 
It's merely an interruption in the story that God is telling about God's creation. In Christ, you and I are forever knit together as one community, as one household, as one body, as one communion. That's what baptism accomplishes in us. Moses and Abraham and Isaac and all of the prophets and all of the martyrs, all who belong to Christ continue to live in Christ. Death is not the end, the way that the autumn people imagine that it is. Death is not a friend that sets us free, the way that winter people imagine it is. Death is the enemy. Death is a lie. It's a lie that sin tells about God's creation. It's a lie that Christ casts down at the cross. It's a lie that Christ tramples under his feet in the resurrection. And it is a lie that becomes unraveled in you and in me in our baptism. And that is what makes us Easter people. Every joy, every struggle, every triumph, every choice is really about you and I growing into Christ's image. It's about you and I building up Christ's kingdom right alongside him. It's about you and I becoming Easter people. The promise of our baptism that we have been adopted into God's family, that we have been united to God's kingdom is fulfilled every time we gather together in Christ's Eucharist. We join our voices with angels and with archangels and with the whole company of heaven as we sing his praises because God is alive. Is the Father with us? Yes. Is Christ among us? Yes. Is the Spirit here? Yes. This is our God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are His people. We are redeemed. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.